it's like a unique mix of kind of cute but also violent. Ah, oh, you're picking up on the violence. And cute, you say? Mm. I mean, I feel like the animal looks cute, but it has the capacity for violence. What if I were to tell you... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this a gecko? This is no gecko, no. This is definitely a frog. This is definitely a frog. I would have told you if it it was... Do you remember ages ago we did that paper on those little toads in Madagascar? Mm-hmm. The little brightly coloured ones they stuck radio transmitters on. I can't remember what they're oh, called. Oh, yes. I can see them. I can see them in my mind's eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't remember what they're called. Uh, re- they were like a sort of rain frog little guy, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those. It's not, I'm afraid. It's. I mean, it, it would have been amazing if you got it right. No. Can I have another guess? Yeah. We have covered this frog or a very close relative of it on the podcast before. Is it the mountain chicken frog? No. No. No, wrong side of the world. We're talking Indian subcontinent. <gasps> hmm. It's... <gasps> oh, no. I wouldn't say it was is cute. It, is it that purple frog? It's a purple frog. Bang on. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Nasika Bactracus. Sahidarensis. Uh, Yensis. Sorry, could you just say that again? Nasaki Bactracus. Yeah. Sahidarensis. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and the common name is just the purple it's frog. purple frog or Indian purple frog. So what? Oh, apparently pig-nosed frog is what oh, Wikipedia told now. me. Pig-nosed frog? Yeah, they, I mean, they do have a little, like, squished pink end of the nose. I mean, the pigs should just be called purple frog-nosed pigs because they probably evolved second. Yes. Mm. But that's cool. I'm really happy to hear the call of that little frog. So this is the one that spends the vast majority of its life underground. Is that right? It just comes out for like a few days and then it's just like, all right, sweet, I've bred. I'm going to go back and live underground for like 11 months or something ridiculous. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. What else is there to know about this purple frog? I think maybe there were suggestions that it was more closely related to some frogs on the Seychelles and were to be expected or something along those lines. Like it's got a yeah. weird sort of evolutionary root. Maybe we should talk more about how it looks because I feel like we haven't really done that justice. Like it literally looks like somebody tried to draw a frog for the first ever time and then this came out. I mean, its nose is like a little I don't cone. hate that description. It's like those uh, medieval cats where it's someone trying to draw a creature that's only been described to them. And it's like, oh, here we go. Draw an elephant, even though you've never seen an elephant. Well, it's like a big sort of cow-like thing that's grey with a big nose. It doesn't look like a real frog. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The first line of their description on Amphibia Web is, oh God, I'm going to have to say it now, Nasica Bactracus sahiadrensis is a relatively large burrowing frog with a distinct bloated appearance. This yeah. was the thing, wasn't it? Everyone's just really cruel to it. Yeah. Everyone just mocks it. <laughs> So they cool from inside shallow burrows near streams. Sounds quite good. Explosive breeders laying large numbers of eggs during the earliest rains of the pre-monsoon season. Oh, they come out of the water at night to feed. They're generally fossorial, spending their time underground. They only come to the surface for a few weeks a year to breed. So you could live nearby to them and you might never see one. Well, that's these burrowing frogs, isn't it? They're sneaky. Yeah. But there you go. Indian... Purple Frog, as an introduction to episode 115, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting as always is uh, Tom Major, and we have an episode that has absolutely nothing to do with Purple Frogs, 
other than you got to hear their their wonderful vocalization, which uh, I suppose few people have heard before. <laughs> yeah, very interesting little frog. This is another patron episode, isn't it? Is it? Yes, this one is a patron episode for Ethan Royal. So thank you very much, Ethan, for the suggestions. We had numerous suggestions, but we settled on the idea of the snake related meronasal seeking, right? Like the snake smelling stuff. Yeah, so I think I described it as smelly snake, smelly snake episode in my notes. <laughs> yeah, and so the paper that we've got to discuss is. Molecular Basis for Prey Relocation in Viperid Snakes, and it's by Saviola, Chizar, Bush, and Mackesy, and it was published in BMC Biology way back in 2013, actually. Pretty old school one, but yeah. very cool nonetheless. Sometimes you gotta you got to roll back just to get a real killer of paper, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so what species is it? It is the Western Diamondback Rattlesnake, which are... Atrox. Atrox. Cotalus atrox, yeah. And this species of snake is not as big as the eastern diamondback rattlesnake. They're sort of more eastern cousins, but they're still impressive beasts. They can grow to over two meters long. That's six feet, for those of you that haven't caught up with meters yet. And they're ambush predators. So they're sitting around waiting for delicious mammals to pass by, which they then strike at. And unfortunately for the people of North America, they're actually responsible for most casualties through snake bite in the country. They're easily trodden on and often messed with. And as you said, Ben, Crotalus atrox. Atrox is a Greek word which means cruel, harsh, or merciless. And wow. it's thought, yeah. I mean, I don't think they're any of those things, to be honest. I mean, merciless, yes, but what animal isn't merciless? Um... Well, humans, I suppose, we have the capacity for mercy. Do other animals? I think that there's probably quite a few animals that have the capacity for mercy when they're not hungry. Yeah. So, yeah, the name means cruel, harsh, or merciless. And that is presumably applied in reference to the fact that the animal has a feisty disposition and capacity to deliver a lethal bite. I mean, a feisty disposition, <laughs> just they're just willing to defend themselves if something's... It's one of those like classic mischaracterizations, isn't it? If the only times you you meet these animals is when you're grabbing them and wrangling them around and poking them to see what they're like, yeah, you're gonna get a uh, <laughs> disposition that uh, is less than agreeable. Yeah. Oh, this tiger's not very nice. I'm pulling on its tail. Oh, it's, it's not like my house cat. It's, it's, these tigers are so grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like other rattlesnakes, it's so named because it has the tail rattle, which is used as a kind of warning against predators. Well, it's more like a warning against things that might tread on it. It Watch doubles. Out, I'm here. It, it, it can be and a bit I of could, both, can't it? Yeah, I could mess it's you a up. Sudden spook tactic. Like many vipers, not all vipers, but many vipers, rattlesnakes have a very advanced mode of predation. They have powerful venom, and what they do is they bite their prey, and then they release the prey let it go on its way and then they follow the trail and consume it once it's incapacitated by venom the obvious pro of that strategy is that you don't have to hang on to an animal which is thrashing around and fighting for its life obviously an animal which feels it's under attack by a predator is gonna start flailing around and trying to do damage to that predator 
So it's good that they don't have to hang on to it. The con of that strategy is that your little mammal, your mouse that you've bitten onto, has the potential to get away. It could find a way to get somewhere that you can't retrieve it, or it could just run away so far that you can't follow it. And also it can be tricky to tell which trail to follow if you've got Obviously, the mouse came in one way, then you've bitten it as the snake, and then it runs off in the other direction. Which trail do you follow? If you accidentally find yourself following the trail of where it came from, rather than where it went, you're never going to track it down. Right. That could be an issue. And there have been a few papers out there describing the idea that snakes can follow envenomated prey. So this is prey which has received a dose of venom from the fangs of the snake. And then needs following. So animals which have been bitten by a venomous snake are actually known to prompt more tongue flicking than animals which have not been bitten by a venomous snake. So that suggests that rattlesnakes can actually tell whether or not a snake uh, animal has been bitten. So they did that with euthanized mice. They'd inject them with snake venom and they'd just inject other ones with salt water. And the ones which had been injected with venom elicited a lot more tongue flicking from rattlesnakes and that suggests that there's something in the venom that the rattlesnakes can pick up on and detect and kind of interests them. Well they essentially do that again in this study in exactly the same way they have the whole bunch of venom extracted from these snakes and you say putting them in in euthanized mice to see if if tongue flicks differ. We should just jump straight into the paper with that because I mean they're repeating those studies that uh, that you mentioned there but there's a at a critical component, I don't know whether the previous studies did this. I sort of assumed that they did, but there's a bit of methodology in this one that's really important. Is they So you have your test animal, and you present it with a mouse and yep. allow it to strike the mouse. It releases the mouse, as they do, and you take away that mouse, and you replace obscured. So basically you have this snake in arena. They have a concealed mouse chamber I suppose <laughs> right yeah and then they're placing in a mouse which is either envenomated or not envenomated in this chamber to, and then observing the snake's interest or disinterest disinterest uninterestedness whichever the right version is in the mouse or not but the real kicker is that the snake is provided a mouse to strike because there's another study that popped out what last year was it this year, 2021, by uh, Teixeira et al., which did essentially the same study as we're, we're talking about here, without that bite. So the snake is provided a choice between, well, not even a choice, actually, it's provided hidden mice, some of them envenomated, some of them not envenomated, some of them envenomated by other species of rattlesnake, to see if they preferentially track down the ones that uh, are envenomated or not envenomated, and they didn't find a difference. Whereas, you know, the snake was equally as likely to track down and consume a mouse, regardless of venom. Right. So it's suggesting that this sort of bite component, this active, I have bitten my prey, now I'm looking for it, is quite a big deal in whether the snake will follow venom cues to the carcass or not. I mean, the, the other study was looking at, like, uh, kleptoparasitism, essentially. It's, would rattlesnakes find prey killed by other rattlesnakes more preferentially than just coming across a random carcass and just scavenging that? So, it's you know, they're asking a slightly different question, but it does point 
to the importance of the bite as an initiator, essentially. Yeah, because we've talked about this before in the context of puff adders, haven't we? Like, once they bite, it initiates this, like, stereotypical seeking behaviour. Right. So the paper you're talking about, does that kind of contradict the findings of this paper, would you say, a little bit? I mean, it... Before we get stuck into this one, it'd be good to know if it's sort of like, is it a little bit contradictory? Essentially, no, because there is this key difference in the methodologies. Because those snakes didn't get to bite, these snakes do get to bite. But it does in the sense that the snakes are less interested. The difference between envenomated and non-envenomated prey doesn't exist in that other paper, where it it does exist in this paper. So it's contradictory in that sense, but I think they're basically asking different questions. I mean, they are asking right. different questions, but there's a very key... That's the scavenger... The other paper is very much scavenger. This is very much finding their own prey. So I think the other paper is really good because it draws this 2013 paper into a tighter examination of prey-seeking behaviour post-bite. You know, it completely separates the scavenger aspect it gives it a more sort of meaningful intent to the snake's behavior i feel it's not just Mm. that they are generally better at finding envenomated prey it seems but that when they bite they go into this like you say this sort of seeking mode and venom is a key component to enabling that Okay, so if they hadn't, so in this other paper you're describing, if they hadn't bitten anything, they didn't care which mouse they followed. But if they had bitten something, they followed the one that had the smell of being bitten. Well, they didn't test the bite, non-bite in the other paper. Oh, I see. Sorry. Okay. This is why you need to sort of combine the two to get the full picture in some regards. Ah, yes. Okay, yeah. That's the only way I'm seeing to explain the difference in the results between the two papers. Because they're using, you know, they've got several, well, that and also we're using different species of rattlesnake. So, <laughs> you know, make, they were using Fratalis viridis. Right. But when you're talking about these sort of fundamental reasons why venom's made up in a certain way and how snakes track down prey, I'm not sure you'd expect there being that much difference between Crotalis species. Probably not. I don't know. But... Yeah, but that's hard. I mean, there's a lot of different proteins in venom, yeah. but they could, yeah, the likelihood is they're probably using a similar mechanism to track things down. I think that would be a relatively sensible assumption to operate under, but mm. yeah, as far as I can, you know, maybe there's some other subtleties that I'm missing here, but my reading of both the papers was that bite aspect was the key difference. Hmm. So let's talk about this one. So what they were doing was they were testing to see how snakes responded to euthanized, so they're already dead, the mice, but they've been injected with either venom or salty water. They tongue flicked a lot more towards the envenomated ones, right? The envenomated ones instigated a lot more interest from the snakes, confirming the results of previous studies, which suggests that, yeah, envenomated mice are interesting to snakes for some reason. So then they took to the lab and they had a look at the protein profiles of Western diamondback, that's Crotalis atrox, venoms, and they separated the venom out into these four protein peaks. And Basically then, of different, so, different sizes. Yeah. They call it size exclusion fractionation, yeah. which is basically a fancy way of saying we got a tiny little sieve and we <laughs> sieved out the proteins to all it different is, sizes. It is. It's a chemical sieving. That's a nice way of yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. They're like gel beads and then different sizes of venom can squeeze through or they can't. Imagine you were like panning for gold 
and you've got like that little sieve which just keeps the nuggets in there and lets the sand fall through it's exactly like that but a lot more posh and you have to do it with a lab coat (laughs) they then once they'd separated all these different sizes of protein out they had four groups of proteins of different sizes and they then injected only those into the euthanized mice and then they tested the response of the snakes yeah so you've got what they found test of full venom versus no venom then you've got test of each of the little aspects of that venom versus non-venom. Yeah. Exactly. And so what they saw was that actually it was only three of the four groups of proteins didn't elicit the excited tongue flicking that the whole venom did, but one of them did. And that tells them, okay, it's this particular group of proteins that the snakes are actually sniffing out and potentially following when they've envenomated the prey that helps them track down the mouse. And this group of proteins, it's got a pretty catchy name. I think you'll agree, Ben. They call them venom disintegrins, crototoxin one and two. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very easily remembered. Venom disintegrins, crototoxins one and two. And sure enough, these actually allow Western diamondbacks to distinguish between envenomated and non-envenomated prey sources, presumably by altering the chemical odor of the prey that they've bitten. And disintegrins... The role of disintegrins, they kind of counter blood clotting. So they inhibit the kind of clumping of platelets when things have been bitten. Quite a common thing for um, viper venoms to do. It just means that like your blood doesn't work properly and you start to sort of hemorrhage and stuff like that. And eventually you end up in a really bad way. Inside a viper. And deliciously, yeah, deliciously consumed later on. So yeah, that's a pretty cool finding. They basically isolated the mechanism by which these vipers are sniffing out their prey after they've bitten it. So if you ever want to play a trick on a Western Diamondback, you think it'd be funny to sort of lead it down the garden path, get yourself, get hold of some uh, disintegrins crototoxin one and two, splash it on a mouse and drag it around the garden and you'll find See, that Western Diamondbacks will be after you it. You say that, but... Provided they've bitten Exactly, it. the 2022 paper would suggest that wouldn't work and they would just be equally oh. as likely to find a, a dead mouse without any venom around it because they haven't had that initial bite to kickstart whatever tracking, tracking behaviours mm. required for using that tag. I think that's what makes the other paper so sort of intriguing is it's, it's not like... It adds a lot more depth to the sort of viper thinking about what's going on i don't know it feels like it requires more intent it feels like they're using it as opposed to just oh it smells good over here off i go and you yeah. know blindly following a scent yeah it's like they have to flick that, and that switch would into also seek mode like sort of makes sense because presumably that scent is going to be around in the environment post consumption right so once you've yeah. eaten your prey you know you probably want to be able to turn off that you know that seeking behavior Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's you know it's a time time limited thing. You have a time period post bite that it's active. After that time, you know the snakes tend to ignore it because they have either found the prey at that point, or it's dramatically diminishing returns of expending more energy looking for a prey that they're very unlikely to find, and therefore don't care. Yeah, it's cool. I just love that. I don't know how long we're finding out more about how venom works. It's, you know, there's so many papers about like how the proteins react to sort of the body of the prey, like what they actually do. And a lot of that obviously pertains to humans and how they affect people once they're bitten. 
And of course, there's this kind of trend that animals which have venom that eat mammals, the venom is more damaging to people because we're mammals. But I think when you have facets of venom which influence the sort of hunting success of the animal, you know, it's actually used in the ecology of the species. Mm -hmm. It's like, right, the snake bites something and there's a portion of the venom which is actually probably having an effect on the prey. But not only that, it also benefits the viper in terms of like helping it track it down after it's bitten it i think that's really fascinating it is i think it's just neat it's neat to know that like there's so much going on behind these venoms and yeah i think that there'll be more and more of this kind of thing going on and i'm sure there's many more facets to the venom which benefit the snake in different ways that people are yet to discover and i'm sure there's a huge variety in the mechanism for this in different species it's not all snakes you know like um i remember the uh Tremerosaurus macrops out in Thailand, they hold on to their prey when they bite it. They don't let it go. And we've talked about that before. Could Could well be because they're an arboreal species. So they've got, their prey can not only escape in a much more complex three-dimensional space because it's up in the trees, but it can also fall to the ground and then you've got to go down to the floor and start mucking around down there and that has its own suite of dangers. And it would be interesting to see if like species with kind of similar venoms or like who are sort of... um, closely related but maybe arboreal versus terrestrial either possess or lack these kind of like seeking elements to the venom and that'd be a cool thing yeah i mean you're hitting on this interplay between ecology and venom composition it's very much chicken and egg and probably is not even chicken and egg it's interrelationship where one is equally influencing the other right so you're more likely to be arboreal because you've got the ability to hold on to your prey or if you're arboreal do you have to sort of come up with solutions to get around <laughs> prey escape being being more risky perhaps that's assuming mm. that it is more risky and that arboreality has anything to do with it yeah it's a reasonable hypothesis i would say but yeah yeah lots to learn lots to learn there was one more thing that i wanted to bring up with this paper where they bring up this whole overkill method and the sort of suggestion that uh, snakes deliver an excessive dose for incapacitating their prey. And it draws that into nice attention because, okay, well, what if all of the venom isn't used for eliminating prey? What if the excessive dosage is to make sure that you've got enough of this protein, this tagging protein, that it is nicely perceptible in the environment so you can track down your prey item? I just really like that as a nice, if your venom has multiple purposes, then you can no longer do this sort of one-to-one of why are snakes not optimizing their venom delivery perfectly? Because the outcome, their goal, is not necessarily just incapacitation. It's multi-use. I love that. I love that level of nuance or subtlety, whatever the right word is, that extra dimension for venom use and just the way snakes are using that. Yeah. Super cool. And yeah, if uh, this is the kind of paper I expect corrections on <laughs> from people who are listening, oh, you know a bit more about yeah, venoms than us. Uh, like, this is not our wheelhouse by any stretch. <laughs> yeah, we like finding out where snakes go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, really fascinating. And yeah, thanks again to Ethan Royal for really cool suggestion. Yeah, love it. Have you got any other business for this episode, Ben? I don't. I have no business whatsoever <laughs> i have so many other business oh. and it's actually from ethan royal this very same oh. patreon who suggested this episode he really enjoyed our crab eating snakes episode 
Uh, so thanks for the kind words on that. And it reminded him of the Regina and Lyodites species they have in the southeastern US. Many of these species of snake specialize on crayfish to some extent, and both Regina species rely almost entirely on soft, recently molted mm. crayfish. You'll remember that that's what we were yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah. One of the snakes in the paper seemed to be smelling out the... Uh, the squidgy ones. The recently molted squidgy ones via a particular hormone that they right, release. yeah. And... Yeah, he's actually in the middle of a trapping session of Regina Grahami, and he said the number of snakes that are stuffed full of soft crayfish food items is ridiculous. <laughs> They're also very clearly efficient at smelling and tracking them down during that post-molt window. Yeah, I so hope that's that cool. makes it's them very unique. easy to capture and uh, placid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it probably makes them quite sicky when you capture them as oh. well. Yeah. But yeah, it's quite cool that it's not because those snakes were in Malaysia, weren't they? On the mud flats of Malaysia. Yes, and I think so. It's also something which snakes, which presumably live in the mud in the southeastern US, are doing as well. So that's really fascinating. And um, yeah, he said, because he's working on the species and it said it gave him a few ideas for Regina experiments. And uh, we'll be in the acknowledgements if anything comes from <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, I mean, if that's not the purpose of the podcast, I don't know what is. Inspiring people yeah. to ask different questions. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, that is really That's awesome. So thank that. you very much, yeah. Ethan. And yeah, thanks for your continued patronage. And if you'd like to become our Patreon yourself and suggest a topic, you can at patreon.com slash highlights. Yeah, I think that just about ties off the episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can highlights at gmail.com. We're on social media. Get those, those venom, venom corrections. <laughs> yeah, if you're a venomologist, get in touch. We'd love to hear how badly we misrepresented that paper. No, I, I think we tried our best. That's all we can do. So yeah. I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>